This is a historic day in the life of our church. We have a vote afterward, a congregational meeting. Uh, that is probably the biggest vote we've taken in this church in, in over a decade for sure. We have a picnic planned for this afternoon out at the property. We have 300 people signed up. We've not had 300 people sign up for anything ever in the life of this church. Anything ever, anywhere. Other than a Sunday morning, we've never seen 300 of our people together. Uh, so we have a jammer planned. Um, but here's, here's the deal. It's going to be a little bit of chaos, okay? But it's going to be fun chaos. So bring your blankets, bring your chairs, bring your beach umbrella, bring your pop-up tent thing, you know, bring whatever. It's going to be a beautiful day by the grace of God. It will be great fun. We will announce the results tonight out there at the property, and we will uh, be together. So anyway, come with that expectation, though. There's going to be kind of a managed chaos, uh, but that's okay. I'm going to be leaving on Tuesday afternoon for six weeks. Um, I will be back. And I will hit the ground running. Um, but the church has been extremely gracious to grant me four weeks of sabbatical. Uh, we are very grateful uh, and very anxious to enjoy that time. They have allowed me also to tack on a little of my vacation on the front end. So uh, we will be gone for about six weeks. You are in capable hands. Morgan is in charge. The buck stops with him. So uh, call Morgan. Um, <clears throat> email Morgan. Uh, and uh, Greg is a good man, and he has come alongside. They are a great team, and, and you are in good hands. And when we get back, you know we have so much on the plate that uh, we will hit the ground running, and there are many things will be, will be going forward. So there we go. We are in the midst of a series on First Peter. We've been preaching through, as we have reached First Peter chapter 3, as we've seen in chapter 2, we've been talking about submission in verse 13, being subject for the Lord's sake. Uh, for, for Christ's sake, to every human institution. He's talked about masters and servants, and he's talked about then um, governors and governments and emperors, and in chapter 3, he moved into wives and husbands. And so if you were not here last week, I encourage you to go and listen to wives and husbands, because today I come after the men. Uh, today I'm talking to the men, and it's only fair that if you weren't here last week, you should listen to the uh, first six verses as we spoke to the wives. Um, they do overlap, but today we talk to the men. We're really just going to preach out of verse 7, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 to give the full context. Hear then the word of God. Likewise, wives should be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, by the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is a very precious thing. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They adorned themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so likewise, husbands, have unity of mind. And Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, and so that your prayers may not be hindered. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning in 
We come to sit at your feet and to learn from you. We trust your word and we believe it is true in every word and syllable. And we simply want to understand it, that we might obey it, that we might see our lives conform to it, that we might bring you honor and glory in the way that we follow Jesus and conform ourselves to his word. Father, these are difficult things. They've been much confused in the life of the church in, over the years. And so we pray for clarity and wisdom and understanding and grace as we talk about these things. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just to throw a couple of words on the table, if, uh, if, if you identify with labels, um, I am not egalitarian. Our, our tradition is not egalitarian. We are complementarian. An egalitarian makes no distinction of roles in the marriage, and complementarian does distinguish roles in the marriage. And while I'm complementarian, I am anti-totalitarian, um, which is sometimes the way complementarian is taken to understood and applied in the home. And it's been much abused through the years, and I understand this. And so you have to be careful, I think, to stay really close to the Scripture when you talk about these things. Alexander Strauch, it's there in your bulletin, he wrote a book called Equal Yet Different. He is a 20-year pastor in the PCA and in the Reformed tradition. He's written a number of books, um, and he is so a pastor theologian, and he wrote this book. Um, he wrote one on being elders and one on being married. And he said, scholars used to turn complementarian in order to emphasize both the equality of the sexes and the complementary differences between men and women. And that's the way to understand it, that men and women are both are equal before God. The sexes are equal, equally intelligent, equal persons, equal before the Lord, co-heirs with Christ. And yet, there is a differentiation in the roles that God has given us to play in marriage and in our homes. And the Bible teaches that the husband is the head of his home, which is a doctrine, as I said, that is much misunderstood and abused. The husband is head of his wife. We're going to read that text here in a moment. As men love that text, and we read that, and as many of you know, you probably know that text more than any of the rest of it. Because men often along the way have loved to claim that power and authority. The man is, a, the, man is the head of the home. Um, and use it as a stick to, uh, to, to run the place. But when we do that, when we claim the authority and the power and fail to understand the responsibility and the sacrifice... We dishonor the scripture and we dishonor our Lord. Leadership is not just about having power and authority. There is authority and there is power that is then used when you give someone authority. And where somebody is given absolute power, it corrupts absolutely. We know that. There's great danger in authority and in power. And so leadership, biblical leadership, is not about having power and authority. Christ has it as Lord of his church. And he gives it to men as heads of their homes. But biblical leadership and authority is not so much about having it. And you'll see the emphasis in, in Ephesians and in Peter, where we're going to go, is not so much about having it, but it's about how you use it. It's about the character of the person who wields power, what we do with it. So look at Ephesians 5. It is the context. I don't think you can address this issue and not read Ephesians 5. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5. We're going to talk about it for a minute, and we're going to jump back into Peter. So the context for, I think, Peter, and I think he even quotes Paul in saying that wives should submit to their own husbands. Submitting to one another then, Ephesians 5, the passage I pulled out there. Submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. So it begins with a call to submission, a mutual submission of men and women, even in their marriages, into a Christian mutuality. Right? There is a sense, we are brothers and sisters in Christ before we are anything else. And that brings a certain mutuality. And so we submit to one another in mutual love and mutual service and mutual discipleship. There's a mutual counsel, mutual encouragement, because we are co-heirs together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, before we are husband and wife even. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submitting then to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of his church, his body, and is himself the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as Christ does his church. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. Marriage is not like any other relationship on the planet. You just need to know that up front. It is not like any other relationship on earth. God has ordained, he says here, a profound mystery. The husband is given headship and he's given leadership and the wife is called to submit and to follow that lead and to respect authority. Piper says, it's there in your bulletin under the Ephesians, he says, headship, this is defining it, headship is a divine calling of a husband. It's his calling to take the primary responsibility in the home and in the marriage for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision. This is a man's job. It's an active job. It's an active leadership where we are responsible, husbands, for the spiritual well-being of our wives and of our children. A responsibility given by God. Responsible for protection, their spiritual protection, that they're exposed to the right things and protected from the wrong things and and physically in every other way and provided for. Not just in a place to live and clothes to wear, but provided for and that we pour out our, our love to them and care for them, give them of our time and our resources and that they have what they need to grow up healthy and spiritual, physically and emotionally. Spiritually. So Christ-like servant leadership may not be passive and uninvolved. You know, Christ is not passive and uninvolved with his church. But it may not be dictatorial either. Paul spends twice as many verses, interestingly, in that Ephesians passage there, twice as many verses describing what kind of leader the man ought to be as he does talking about his leadership. In fact, he really only states his leadership. He says that headship belongs to the husband, and a wife is called to follow his lead and to submit to his leadership. And then he leaves it there. He doesn't describe that leadership. He doesn't outline it. He doesn't describe what authority lies there. He doesn't outline anything else. He leaves it there. He establishes it, and then he goes after the husband and says, this is what kind of a leader you are supposed to be. And he spends twice as many verses talking about that as he did even in giving out the responsibility to begin with. And he does the same kind of thing. Peter does the same kind of thing here. He calls the wives in verses 1 through 6 to a heartfelt submission as an expression of her godliness to her husband. I think it's a fair summary 
Go back and listen to last week if you missed it. That he's calling wives to a heartfelt submission to her husband's leadership as an expression of her own godliness. And then in verse 7, he speaks to the husbands. Interestingly, he does not speak directly to their authority and to their leadership. He assumes it. He assumes it from verses 1 to 6. What the wife is called to submit to, there is assumed, I think, Ephesians chapter 5, the the whole context of, of a husband's leadership. So it's assumed there. He doesn't even address it. He doesn't say, husbands, make sure you exercise your authority. You know, husbands, make sure that you understand your head or make sure. No, what he says is, husbands, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way and make sure you show her honor. Comes after the kind of leader, the kind of man that he wants in the home, representing him. And then he assumes this leadership and he warns us about how to use it. And I take it as a warning because he ends that section saying, likewise, husbands, live like this, understanding, showing honor as a weaker vessel that coheres with you in Christ so that your prayers are not hindered. In other words, if you don't do this, it stifles your spiritual relationship, your spiritual life. But if you don't do this, it closes off your communication with God. It shuts things down spiritually. Right? There's a warning here. Husbands, follow Jesus at home or it will mess you up spiritually. And so be understanding and respectful and show her honor so that your spiritual life may not be stifled. See how a wife treats his wife reflects on the Savior. That's what that's what. Ephesians tells us, that's what Paul tells us through that whole passage, how a husband treats his wife, reflects on his Savior. He says, because you're like Christ in that sense. You're head of your wife as Christ is head of his church. And so how you do it reflects on what you think about Jesus and how he does it. What kind of a head he is to his body. What kind of a husband he is to his bride, the church. And so let me give you four things that I think he says that we need to live with our wives in an understanding way. Let me outline some of those quickly for you. They're there in your bulletin. I think I laid them out. Understanding the unique nature of the marriage relationship. Understanding Jesus' teaching about that uh, re- uh, leadership and, and, uh, and headship. Understanding Jesus' model and understanding his wife's needs. These are the things I believe when Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. What is it we need to understand? Live with your wives according to knowledge. What is it we need to know as husbands? We need to know the head. And we need to know his teaching and we need to know his model. And then we need to know our wives. Because I believe that's what we pull out of what Jesus is and does. And so understanding the unique nature of marriage relationship, I was saying it is unlike anything else on the planet. Paul says that covenant marriage is a mystery. It's a mystery like the church and its savior. It's a mystery. It creates an utterly unique relationship. Utterly unique. It is the only relationship, I believe, biblically, in which there should be a physical union. It is unique to marriage, according to the Bible. Nowhere else. Outside of it, no. Inside, yes. Big yes. Exclamation mark, yes. It was created. God made, this is, this is the place 
right? This it was, in a sense, created for it. There's a beauty there, but it is the only relationship where that takes place. It, and it, for me, it is just an illustration to say there's no other relationship like this one. Nothing like it. It creates an intimacy unlike anything else in the world. Jesus says, God says, they are no longer two. They've become one. That's like nothing else. It's a mystery. I'm still trying to figure it out. Strauch says in his book, again, it's there in your bulletin, the husband-wife relationship is not a boss-employee relationship. It is not a commander-soldier. It is not a teacher-student relationship. It's a love relationship. It's the most intimate of all relationships. It is a covenant marriage relationship in which two adults have become united as one. And within this union, one partner lovingly takes the lead. And the other willingly and actively supports that lead. See, authority differs depending on the relationship, doesn't it? Sometimes we just think of authority and power and we think and we just start comparing it like it's one thing. It's not. Think of the, the authority that a commander has over a soldier. There's nothing like it. It's unique. It's, it's not, there's authority there. But, you know, in that relationship, I, I, you know, the, the officers are not allowed to fraternize with the soldiers. They're not allowed to. You know, in marriage, you're not supposed to stop fraternizing. It's the total opposite. Right? There, I mean, so the authority, the, you know, the, the rules that govern what that looks like are totally different. The power that a, that a general has over a private is, is a unique thing. And it's different than a, an employee boss, isn't it? Now, if you have a, a, a boss and an employee, the, the, the authority that a boss has over their employee, that's different than a general has over private. Right? The rules are different. What, what authority he's allowed to bear, what things he's allowed to demand or to do, or things he's allowed to hold him accountable are, are different. You don't get to line them up and see if their shoes are polished. Right? You don't get to get them up at 4 a.m. and run them until they're... You know, it's different. Parent-teacher is different. There is authority. But it's a, it's a different application of authority because it's a different kind of relationship. Think of parent-child. How unique that is. We say to our children, look, we put together... The substances of life I created you. Right? you. You have come to birth out of this unique thing that God has done. And, and I have a unique authority in a child's life. Right? We say, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is that children should honor their father and their mother. But think of that relationship. How, and yes, there are rules and strictures in the home. But at the same moment, the it is all done because we love the child. We want to raise the child. We are out for the child's interest. We want the child to prosper. We want to empower them. We want to enable them. We want them to come to full fruition in their adulthood. And we pour our lives out to them. I would die for my kids. And there's a unique thing that goes on there. And I would even say when the teacher tries to take authority in my child's life in a certain way, I'm saying, I'm the parent. You don't get that authority. In other words, the authority differs. The teacher doesn't get the authority the parent has. The boss doesn't get the, is different than the commander and and so on. And what I want to say, all this is to say, what we got in marriage is a unique animal. It's unlike any other relationship on the planet. We see it in the sound of music just as an illustration there. I came to that late in my, early in my adulthood as a young man. The sound of music. Captain Von Trapp. And his whistle. How does he call his children? Right? Each one has a different whistle sound. 
And if they hear their whistle sound, they come running and they come running and they snap their heels together and they come to attention. You know, the whole thing is there's a silliness to the whole thing that this Captain Von Trapp running his house like it's a, like what? Like, it, like the military. Like, like he is, the home, this relationship, the whole point there is this relationship is different and the whole show is about setting the home free from that kind of leadership and winning the father's heart back and changing and making the home something different. Because you don't treat children like soldiers. The way a husband and a wife cut a covenant together. Two sinners saved by grace. Two human beings, two creatures under God, two fallible. When two sinners say, I do, and they cut a covenant together. And the two are no longer two sinners, they're now one big sinner. (laughs) Greatly in need of Jesus and his grace. And it's not even like, it's exponential, you know, the two. It's not one times one. But when they cut a covenant together, they create something unique. There is nothing else like it. Nothing else like it except one thing. Right? And that's what Paul says, there's one thing like it. When a person comes to faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and he's filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, and he becomes part of the body of Christ, and in a sense, the two become one. And he is the head of his church, the body. And so there is, there is, this is the one place we can look. If you are looking, how do I do this at home? You can't look to the military, and you can't look to the school, and you can't look to the workplace. You've got to look at Jesus. And that is the only place you get to look to understand really what does this mean? How do I do this? Bromley says this, it's here in your bulletin, Bromley, he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. He made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people, the bride of Christ. So before the foundations of the world, we were destined to become, he says, to be adopted by grace and to form his body. And he, so when he created marriage between us, he had already had in mind Christ in his church. And he created it in its image. This is a profound mystery. We can't appeal anywhere else. So we need to understand Jesus' teaching. We need to understand the unique nature of the marriage relationship. And then we need to understand Jesus' teaching. His teaching on the Christian life. His teaching on leadership. His teaching on the use of power. These are key issues in what does it mean to follow Christ at home. How we use power exposes our hearts. I believe that it is so. I think how when we have, sometimes we have physical power, I'm bigger than you. Right? Sometimes I'm, I'm stronger than you. Sometimes we have physical power. Sometimes we have position. I have posi- I've been given position over you. So I have power. Sometimes I have more money than you. And that gives me power. And so if I can control the flow of money, I can control you. There are all kinds of ways that we can, we can have power with each other. But how we treat the weak, in other words, how we use power, exposes us. How you treat the elderly, those who at some point in their lives are vulnerable. How you treat children. 
those who are under our care and under our power, how we treat them, how we use power. When you have position, and that's the thing, the danger is that power can corrupt and we can use and abuse power. But how we treat the weak and how we use power is, I think, key to understanding where somebody is. Jesus is teaching on the Christian character and Christian attitudes and, you know, the fruits of the Spirit. You should have love, joy, and peace, but you should have patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And these should be the things that mark your character and are the foremost things that, that form the way you treat people and interact with people. And it is funny to me how husbands will hear sometimes two verses in the book of Ephesians. It says he's head of his wife, as Christ is head of the church. And every other teaching on Christian character goes out the window. As if the very first place that we don't apply the character of Christ and the fruits of his spirit is at home with our wives and with our children. It's the first place, not the last place. If it doesn't work at home, my friends, I don't think it works. If you don't follow Jesus at home when no one's looking except for those who are under your power, you need to wonder whether you're really following him at all. It doesn't work at home. It doesn't work how we use power. Look at Mark chapter 10. It's in your bulletin there. Mark 10, Jesus says, well, we we read this and then Jesus responds to it. The disciples are talking to each other and they said, grant us, Lord Jesus, grant us to sit at your right hand and on your left in your glory. Give us position. Give us authority over our brothers. Right? Give us power. Give us this place. You know, like a husband has over his wife. I want to sit at your right hand and have some authority over everybody else. Jesus' answer is this. And I think it is determinative of understanding Jesus's, of everything Jesus did, his whole life, his incarnation, his life, his washing of feet, his death on the cross, and his continued intercession for his people. If you don't get this, you don't get Jesus. Because this is Jesus in power. This is Jesus in authority. He says this, you guys know. That those who are considered rulers, you know, everybody who has position out there, you know people who have given a little bit of power. The Gentiles lord it over them. They use their power to lord it over other people. They love to exercise their authority. They love to use it. That's when you think you give even give a parking attendant power over who gets to come in or who gets, you know, or whatever. And then you see it goes to his head like he's, he's in charge of something. And my goodness, he's going to use his authority. You know, whatever little we get. He says, you know, that's what it's like out there. Gentiles lord it over them. And he says, but here's the thing. It shall not be so among you. Not you guys. You guys are my disciples. I am your Lord and your teacher. And I'll give you an example of what this looks like. Don't look out there for an example. Look in here for an example. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be the servant of all. Even the Son of Man, even the Lord Jesus, the Son of the living God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus turns the world upside down. Jesus, who had all power and authority, what does he do with it? What does he do with it? Even now, what does he do with it with us? Does he lord it over us? Does he come after us and shame us? And What does he do with it? He has the law and it's right. What does he do with it? He dies to save us from, the, from it. 
What does Jesus do with his power? He never uses his power selfishly, never. Jesus is not a taker, he's a giver. And you see it in everything he did by laying aside and emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant and becoming a man in the incarnation, living the life that you and I failed to live, living as a poor man, wandering around with nowhere to lay his head, in a sense submitting himself to our humanity, submitting himself to our plight, getting down on his hands and knees, washing the feet of his disciples, pouring out himself in sacrifice and service and healing and in teaching and in giving to the point where even to his even to death on a cross. And so that's Jesus' model to understand Jesus. It's not only his teaching in all these ways, but he lived it. He lived it. His, his example, as you look to the way Jesus wields power. Here's the thing. Jesus never does our bidding, so to speak. We never get to tell Jesus what to do. He's the Lord. And that's why I still am very, very comfortable ending my prayers with, not my will, but your will be done. There's no doubt about who's Lord in my heart and in my mind. But here's the thing. I can't tell Jesus what to do. I, I, I don't command him in any way. But what Jesus does is he figures out and he knows what I need. And he loves me so well that he willingly, <laughs> willingly, knows my needs and meets my needs to their greatest extremity. He takes his great power that he has over me and he uses it to save me and to cleanse me and to empower me and to bless me, to encourage me, to comfort me, to come alongside of me as my older brother. He makes us feel loved and secure and he makes us holy and he makes us alive. You know, when Jesus, there's no question about the obedience that we owe to Jesus. But I can tell you this, it is not hard to give him that obedience when he's on his knees washing my feet and hanging on a cross and cleansing me of my sin and standing before the Father pleading, pleading for me. The husband needs to understand the nature, the unique nature of his marriage, the, the teaching of Jesus, the model of Jesus, and finally you need to understand your wife's needs. Paul describes this, I believe, in that passage from Ephesians that we were looking at, and it says at the end, <clears throat> it's interesting to me, after talking about the headship and authority that he has, he moves into talking about what it looks like for a man to take care of his own body. I took a shower this morning, I shaved, you know, I used soap and shampoo, I'm clean, you know, I brushed my teeth, I got dressed as good as I could, I'm, you know, I'm working on it, and then, so, I, you know, and I take care of myself, I'm checking in the mirror before I go out, you know, is everything cool, I take care of myself, I try to work out, I try to eat right, I try to do stuff, I care about me. And Paul says, you can't care about you if you don't care about your wife the same way or better. Consider her interests above your own. To love her is your own body. A man who does not love his wife does not love himself. There is some mystery here. There is some great thing here. And what I'm saying is for a man to understand his wife's needs, it says that, that a man is to nourish and cherish his wife the same way Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. 
It's an amazing thing. Jesus nourishes us. He pours out his Holy Spirit, giving us life and health and peace abundantly. And he meets us and he comforts us and he strengthens us and he encourages us and he saves us. And when we sin, he forgives us and he walks with us every day and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And there's this beautiful thing and he knows what we need. And he says, and just like his own body, he nourishes and cherishes us. And he says, husband, are to nourish and cherish their wives like Christ does the church. I'll tell you right now, that requires a husband to be a lifelong student of his wife because she is an alien creature to you. It's a mystery here, bringing these two together because they are so different. They are wired so different. They think so different. They feel so different. Their needs are so different. If I tried to meet the needs of my wife the way my needs are, she's over there starving. Because her needs are different than my needs. So my job, if I'm going to nourish and cherish her, like my own body, is I've got to know what her needs are. I've got to be a student of this creature to figure it out. What do you need from me? So I can nourish and cherish you. Pour out my power and my sustenance on your well-being and the well-being of my family. To love you as Christ has loved me and his whole church. And so conversations and talk sometimes I'm like help me help you like tell me what I need to know I don't know I'm not trying to be mean I'm not trying to be I'm just dull I just don't know so husband you must study your wife and to understand her and whether you have to she can't tell you what to do she can't make you do this she can't make you a she's physically not big enough and two you've been given the headship but I tell you what do you do with your headship is you figure out what her needs are and you nourish her and you cherish her like Jesus did the church And like he does to you now, husbands, how we sacrifice, how we nourish, how we cherish reflects exactly what we think of Jesus. And I think we we have to get this. How you do it with your wife reflects exactly what you think of Jesus and how he treats you and his church. Does he lord it over? Is he harsh? You know, how is Jesus with you? So let me quickly just say, then we are to show honor. To show honor to our wives as a weaker vessel. To show honor as our wives, as sisters in Christ. Let me quickly unpack what that means. As the weaker vessel, some stumble here. A lot of women here, you know, the whole feminism and the whole movement to say, wait a minute. This is all I think he means by weaker vessel. I do not mean, when he says, we are to show honor to our wives as a weaker vessel. Vessel is not a bad word. Men are vessels too. We're all vessels. It's just being a created thing. And he's just saying as a weaker vessel, he means, I think, two things. But what he doesn't mean is that the woman is in any way inferior as a person, in, in intelligence, in, in wisdom even, in grace, in before the Lord, that she is our equal co-heirs with Christ who is our older both of our older brother and we stand with him as co-heirs I know a lot of women who are way smarter than me right there are you know it's not a matter of of that okay so let's just take that out but I think Peter's point out two things one is is the simple obvious fact that women are not as physically strong and big as men are typically as you look at most husbands sitting next to their wives most of them are bigger than their wives and I think what he is saying is this Love them in underway and show them respect is the weaker vessel. In other words, don't abuse that. If they're the weaker vessel, if you're bigger and stronger, don't intimidate your wives. Don't stand up and get in her face. Don't, 
yell at her. Don't use your, in other words, you're, if she's the weaker vessel, what do we do? What did I just say? I think what reveals the core of a man is how he treats the people who are weak whether it's elderly or children or people under their power and authority. And I think that's what he's saying here. If you've got stature over your wife, what do you do with it? Do you use it to make her feel safe? Do you use it to make her feel secure? Are you her protector where you would die for her? Or is she afraid of you? God forbid, because how we are with our wives reflects on our Savior. And that would be dishonoring to our King. So I believe that it simply means you may be bigger, you may be stronger. Don't abuse that. The second thing I mean is a weaker, think he means is weaker vessel is simply that, that he has given us the headship. He's given us authority. And he's saying, don't abuse that. You've been given the headship, so that puts her in the position to be in submission to you. Don't abuse that. She's weaker than you. She's under your authority. Show her honor. Love her like Christ loved the church. Respect her and her gifts and her creativity and her abilities and involve her and listen to her like you listen to no other human being on the planet. God has given her to you as a lifelong companion and partner and you treat her well. She is the daughter of the king. She belongs to Jesus. Right? And I think that's what he says, as heirs with you of the grace of life. She belongs to Jesus. And he's given you a job, but you better not abuse it. Sisters in Christ. And so he gives a warning to husbands, do all this so that your prayers may not be hindered, that it may go well with you. He calls the women to godliness. And he calls the husbands to godliness. And godliness is this. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Understand your marriage. Understand your Savior's teaching. Understand your Savior's model. Understand your wife's needs. And live with her in an understanding way. Showing her respect. Respect is the weaker vessel. Is someone, yeah, you could probably intimidate. Someone you could beat down. And he says, don't abuse that. Show her honor. Respect her. Love her. Pour out your life sustenance for her. Because husbands, how we sacrifice and nourish and cherish our wives reflects on what we think of Jesus and his headship over us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning so grateful that Jesus has loved us so well. We come this morning delighting in the fact that he is head over his body, the church. Delighting to be the bride of Christ delighting to have been loved so well. Father, I pray that you would come near and open our hearts and our minds, that we would not shirk our responsibility as leaders, but that we would be like Jesus as we do it. For the glory of our King and our Savior, we ask and pray. Amen.